Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome, everyone. Thank you again for tuning in to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. We appreciate your tuning in to our show week after week. This is Steve. I'm your host, and we're going to talk about the political machine here in the United States. Uh, First and foremost, let's do a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, As we start off, as always, with our update on COVID, and we are currently at 95.2 million cases. Uh, 1.050 million people have died from the disease, and 606.7 million people have been vaccinated. On the monkeypox front, uh, we are currently at 21,894 cases here in the U.S., and uh, we continue to pay attention to that as well as to COVID. Uh, Reminder, let's make sure that we are staying safe uh, as far as our COVID protocols. And also, you know, let's be aware of our surroundings uh, with regard to monkeypox and get yourself educated on the how and the, the where and the why that that disease spreads and take appropriate precautions. And other events that we are uh, maintaining awareness of, uh, this show is being recorded on uh, Sunday, September 11th, 2022, which marks the 21st anniversary of the attack at the World Trade Center in New York City in the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and the plane crash in Pennsylvania, uh, marking the most deadly terrorist attack in our nation's history. Uh, it's hard to seem that it's been you know, 21 years since that happened, since, uh, like most of you, uh, I can still remember quite clearly where I was and, and what I was doing when I heard the news. Uh, not to mention the fact that later on I found out that a friend and former uh, co-worker that I had was actually a passenger on the first plane that went into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. So uh, we mark that as well. And uh, finally, and, and much more recent, we mark that uh, September 8th, uh, Queen Elizabeth II Uh, monarch of the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and uh, all the realms of the Commonwealth uh, died as well at the age of 96 uh, years old after serving as Queen of England for more than 70 years. So we mark, you know, her her death uh, here in this country as a a very important and significant uh, event in the history of Uh, arguably our closest ally in the world. And uh, to the listeners who uh, listen to this podcast, courtesy of our partner Mint Wave Radio in the UK, uh, we absolutely send our most heartfelt condolences and uh, best wishes uh, for, for you, for England and the UK. And we send our best wishes to the new monarch, uh, King Charles III, wish him all the best, uh, and I guess the appropriate saying is God save the king. So with that being said, uh, we will take a quick moment of silence in memory not only of Queen Elizabeth II, but also in remembrance for the thousands of people that were lost in the September 11th uh, attack here in this country.
And with that being said, uh, want to also just quickly mention, you know, a point of personal indulgence. Um, the passing of Queen Elizabeth has uh, some significance in my family as my father and his uh, ancestors were all from England. My father was actually born uh, north of England um, back in the day. So, you know, there is a, a connection there that uh, I feel uh, for the people uh, of the UK. Actually, we're going to uh, focus this episode on uh, something that came across my radar uh, over the past week. And I felt that it is a, a story, given the situations that we have been uh, witnessing and have been party to in this country for uh, the last uh, couple of years, uh, as taking on a new and significant importance. And um, to, to kind of tee this up, let me give you a little bit of background and, and, and some things to keep in the back of your mind as you listen to uh, what I'm about to go through with this story. Early on in, in the history of the Fired Up program, uh, when we did this more as a radio broadcast than a, a podcast type broadcast, um, I did a show where I talked about strategy and tactics, and in particular, the strategy and tactics being employed by the political parties here in this country, uh, both Democrat and Republican. Uh, and I, I mentioned at the time, you know, how important it was to understand and keep this concept of strategy, which is a plan to take a specific action or set of action and a tactic, which is the practice of taking that plan and putting it into motion. Uh, I illustrated how the uh, Republicans use the strategy uh, the Southern strategy by name uh, to institute a process of uh, locking down Republican control of state legislatures uh, back in uh, starting in the the 1960s and 70s and 80s and moving through in a continuous stream to the present day. So, you know, the strategy was to win and hold as many uh, state houses and state senates and state governorships as they could uh, as a way of essentially feeding uh, political uh, capabilities up the chain to the national level. Uh, so, you know, we've talked about this on, on a few occasions here on this program, uh, but this past week a couple of articles came across my desk which really um, take what we talked about in terms of you know the Southern strategy and what the uh, the Republicans and more specifically the the far conservative uh, Republican end of the party uh, has been uh, doing in 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 the states and at the national level uh, again for at least uh, 55 years. Um, and I, I wanted to make sure that you understand that, you know, when you look at these events, and I've mentioned this as well, 
when you string these dots together, when you look at the the elements that I have presented, you know, over the last uh, months and years on this program, uh, try to focus back and not look at individuals' uh, events, not look at individual situations, but look at a grander picture. Um, you know, essentially, it's kind of the reverse of that old adage. Uh, you do want to see the trees that are in the forest. Um, and the reason I say that is uh, a couple of podcasts ago, I brought out the idea that there is an active uh, movement to constitute a second constitutional convention in this, in this country. And through that, to substantially uh, edit, rewrite, or write a brand new constitution for the United States of America that reflects many of the conservative platform uh, items that we have been talking about here on this show and that the Republicans have been demonstrating to us over the last, uh, you know, four, five, six, ten years. So, you know, keep that one in mind as I bring forward this one because they are essentially two more uh, beads on this string of beads that we have been tracing uh, through the last couple of years on this show. And specifically what I'm talking about, and this was an article, uh, actually there's two articles that I'm going to reference here. Uh, one is a, um, a release from the North Carolina Policy Watch. Uh, and this, both of these are dated actually as being created on June 30th of this year. And, you know, for multiple reasons, you know, involved with, you know, current history and current events, uh, it is just now that this is bubbling to the surface and gaining some steam. But it is something that we need to be uh, paying critical attention to. Uh, what am I talking about? Well, there was a uh, Supreme Court announcement that came out on June 30th. Uh, stating that they will hear a North Carolina redistricting case uh, that um, ha has been described by at least one constitutional scholar as an 800-pound gorilla brooding in the background of election law cases working their way up from state courts. Now, the case he's referring to is uh, entitled uh, Moore versus Harper, and uh, what it is is a case that uh, highlights something called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine. Now, what this is, and uh, likely that you've never heard of this before, but this has been a, a thing that has been working its way through the court system uh, in North Carolina and has made its way to a case uh, in, in Moore versus Harper that is going to be heard by the Supreme Court. And what's, what's so critical about this? Well, that's what we're going to dive into uh, over the next uh, few minutes right here. So in, in this case, and uh, I won't get deeply into the details um, of it uh, other than, you know, as a reference, but in the Moore versus Harper case, uh, North Carolina Republicans are arguing that it was and is unconstitutional for state courts to review redistricting maps 
produced by the General Assembly, even if those maps violate other constitutional protections. Now, by way of background, understand that there are uh, state and federal laws on the books that govern how districts are to be defined and more specifically what things cannot play a role in creating a, uh, a legislative district. Uh, among those are, you know, obviously discriminatory practices, you know, based on, you know, all of the protective, uh, uh, protective status uh, items, you know, race, uh, ethnicity, uh, so on and so forth, economic and, and so forth. Um, but that, that's not the point of this case. The basis of the argument, and again, it, it's something called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine, and what it is is the, the North Carolina Republicans are citing a literal reading of the U.S. Constitution's election clause, which reads, quote, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Now, what does that mean in, in plainer English? That the state legislatures control the when and the where of uh, when elections are being held. And further, the argument uh, goes on to use another clause in the Constitution that says, you know, that the legislatures of the states have ultimate authority in how the elections are to be uh, scheduled and how they are to be executed and that the state executive branch, that would be the governor, as well as federal uh, legislature, that would be the House and the Senate, including the executive branch of the federal government, have no standing to dictate to the states how and where their elections take place. And this is, this is something that is uh, kind of a, a new old wrinkle in that you know, there's always been a, a federal guidance uh, behind how state elections are handled. Now, the Constitution explicitly states that the election of uh, representatives and, and senators uh, at the state and national level is the exclusive province of the states. The federal government can set uh, guidelines or more accurately boundaries within which the states can conduct their uh, elections, but the federal government uh, does not control how the states run their elections. As, as we've seen in you know, the, the elections over the past you know, four or five national cycles and, and state cycles, uh, the process that's followed by the states is, you know, is somewhat all over the place. Um, but you know, there have been a, a, a lot of scholars, advocates, and jurists who, who have uh, rejected the argument and you know, uh, as it has been brought up over the years, and as recently as 2019, in a case entitled uh, Rucho versus Common Cause, uh, in, in which the high court said in that instance that it lacked authority to strike down North Carolina maps 
for partisan gerrymandering. A majority of the courts seem to make clear that state courts are an appropriate venue for such challenges to proceed. So what does that mean? It means that uh, it is ultimately within the purview of the states and not uh, to the federal government to decide uh, whether or not a, a district map uh, is in violation of partisan gerrymandering rules. However, since that 2019 case, members of the court's conservative wing uh, expressed, have expressed a desire to revisit the issue. Uh, in March, when Republican plaintiffs sought unsuccessfully to bring an emergency order from the court blocking the state Supreme Court's adoption of a new congressional district map, Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch indicated that they would have granted the request. In addition, while he rejected the idea of granting the emergency request, Justice Kavanaugh indicated that he sh thought the issue should be considered in the fall term that commences this coming October. So, you know, with the, the placement of the conservative majority on the, the United States Supreme Court, uh, it now is, it looks like an opportune time for, you know, uh, North Carolina Republicans to bring this issue back forward, which is exactly what they're doing. Uh, the, the Moore case uh, is going to be heard by the Supreme Court and, you know, uh, many advocacy groups and court watchers and others are waiting, um, you know, in the wings very, very, very closely paying attention to this because it is going to impact not just North Carolina, but like many decisions, it is going to set a standard that other states, particularly red states, um, are, you know, highly likely to follow. And this is a, a concerning element, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about uh, in more detail uh, today. So, you know, the, the case that is moving toward the Supreme Court is generating much more interest, hence why it has uh, bubbled its way to the top of the mainstream media uh, in, in some cases. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's clear that people who are opposed to this, um, such, such as uh, Allison Riggs, who is the co-executive director and chief counsel for voting rights at the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, uh, she put it this way, uh, and she said, Today's news from the U.S. Supreme Court makes one thing clear. This fall, the future of multiracial democracy is at stake. In Moore, the, the case that this is based on, North Carolina lawmakers argue they essentially get a, quote, free pass, close quote, to violate state constitutional protections against partisan gerrymandering when drawing districts which undeniably hurt voters. You know, they pledge that they will vigorously fight these claims and instead advocate on behalf of the citizens of North Carolina to prove what the independent state legislature theory has been all along, a fringe, desperate, and anti-democratic attack by a gerrymandered legislature. Um, 
you know, critics are also noting that uh, a ruling upholding the GOP stance could have major implica implications excuse me, beyond redistricting. In a statement based on a detailed memo published earlier this month, the Brennan Center for Justice said that if it, referencing the uh, independent legislature, um, were to become law, the so-called the so independent state legislature uh, theory would make it much easier for state legislatures to suppress the vote, the vote, draw unfair election districts, enable partisan interference in ballot counting, and more. Now, let's, let's step out there and let's go back to what I said earlier about holding on to these various points in this ongoing Southern strategy uh, and think about what I said about the second constitutional convention that is, you know, under development in, you know, conservative red states in this country. When you look at the, the objectives of that in rewriting the Constitution uh, and then factor in that this case is coming up to the Supreme Court, which would essentially take the federal government out of the role of any oversight over state legislate um, state I'm sorry state elections um, now you can start to see a picture where we have this one-two punch that is working hard to undo the basis of our democracy that is a free and fair and representative vote by the people so you know when you also tie in the, the calls and the actions that are being taken in the political arenas as far as uh, not only uh, shaping the, the scope of our elections, but exercising ultimate control and basically eliminating the role of the citizen voter in the process. As we talked about uh, in, in several states, notably um, the, the Texas, Florida, uh, Arizona, and, and others, where the uh, Republican candidates are pushing very hard to elect, uh, you know, pro-Trump, uh, pro-big lie uh, secretaries of state who are the, the controllers of elections uh, in the states and you know, putting them in place with the understanding that if the uh, popular vote from the citizens doesn't match what you know, the Republican Party wants, that they will just uh, override and eliminate the electors or the election results of that state and replace it with uh, electors or replace it with an election outcome that uh, aligns with their beliefs and what they want to happen. So essentially, uh, you're looking at these uh, actions that we've outlined on this show up to and including this one here that we're going to talk about in a little more detail after the break, um, where now if you are, are paying attention to the big picture, you can see the the danger level that our democracy faces here. 
essentially, if all of this were to to happen, if if all of these elements were to actually be successful and be implemented, there would be no need for any of us to go to the polls. You know, at a certain time in the year, the you know the the leadership of the state, you know, the party in control. Uh, in this case, you know, think about uh, the far right conservative Republicans would just say, okay, so um, our nominee for president is, you know, Alan Schmo. Our nominee for vice president is, you know, Bob Smith and so on and so forth. They would dictate who is going to run the country. And the you and I, the voters, uh, would have no say. Basically, we have abandoned a democracy and we have gone to uh, an authoritarian dictatorship. That is the reality of you know, what we face unless we are very, very, very committed to exercising our rights to vote to, you know, particularly if you're a Democrat or an independent, um, getting out and voting and making sure that the people who are taking these elected offices are not people who are going to take our uh, democracy, who are going to take our voting process, which is the, the fundamental core element of our democracy here in the United States, and crumble it up like a ball of paper and throw it in the trash can. Um, you know, that is, you know, not hyperbole. Uh, there is a possibility that it could occur. Now, you know, am I saying that it's a, a super high, that it, it's, a, it's a done deal? No, because we the people, we the voters, the electorate can stop it in its tracks by doing what we are supposed to do. That is getting out and voting, voting for our local people, voting for our state people, and voting for our national offices. If we get out and vote uh, in huge numbers, then these ideas can be stopped. And you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll examine a little bit more of this right after we take uh, a break for this public service announcement uh, please stay tuned. We've got some important stuff that we're going to talk about, and I really want to bring the message to you. So we'll be right back after this break. WJMS Media is the proud Raise Your Voice media sponsor for the American Lung Association's 2022 Lung Force Walk, Bridgewater, taking place on Saturday, September 17th at Duke Island Park in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Walk with us to raise critical awareness and funds to end lung cancer and other chronic lung diseases. For more information on how to register for free or donate, visit www.lungforce.org slash Bridgewater. Because when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. And we're back. Thank you. Thank you for listening to that public service announcement. Uh, please, if you can, uh, go to the WJMS radio website. Click on the link for the Lung Cancer Walk and uh, support our efforts uh, in, in battling this deadly disease. Uh, we do appreciate it. All right, uh, to wrap up what I was talking about in the first segment before we move into the second part of this discussion, 
Uh, I want to read an excerpt uh, that came from a uh, memo that was issued by the Brennan Center for Justice. Uh, so, and it comes from attorneys Ethan Herrenstein and Thomas Wolfe, who observed that, and this is uh, what they wrote, the nightmare scenario is that a legislature displeased with how an election official on the ground has interpreted uh, his or her state's election laws would invoke the theory as a pretext to refuse to certify the results of the presidential election and instead select its own slate of electors. Indeed, this isn't far from the plan attempted by former President Trump and his allies following his loss in the 2020 election. And according to former federal judge J. Michael Ludig, a distinguished conservative jurist, the theory is part of the, quote, Republican blueprint to steal the 2024 election. So uh, marinate on that for a second and you know, understand that you know, this isn't just uh, me out here crying wolf. This is a real thing that is garnering real attention uh, by the conservative or the extreme conservative, uh, the so MAGA Republicans, if you want, but the the very right leaning or right level conservative uh, political leaders in this country as a way to solidify uh, ultimate and long term power in this country. And I, I can't stress enough the, the need for you as listeners out there to go and check this out on your own. Uh, you know, we, if you're a longtime listener to this show, you know, and you, you've heard me say it time and time again, you have to do your diligence. You have to dig wider, dig deeper, uh, listen to multiple sources, go out and find uh, who is saying what about the subject uh, and get it from as many sources as possible. If you are conservative and you know you listen to conservative media or conservative social media, uh, you know go listen to what the other side is saying. Uh, and if you are you know a liberal or progressive and listen to you know your side of the media spectrum, go check out what the conservative side is talking about and balance that with what you hear from the sources that you regularly listen to because ultimately the truth lies somewhere in the middle. All right, uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here but staying within the theme. Uh, I've mentioned the Brendan Center for uh, Justice and they are a nonpartisan uh, think tank that analyzes uh, polit politics in this country and provides guidance and insights uh, to you know, elected leaders and, and others, and including the, the citizens of this country, uh, in a nonpartisan manner. That is, they are not Democrat, they are not Republican. Uh, they just look and report and tell the story based on the facts they find. Um, so uh, again, this was also uh, published uh, or last updated on the 30th of June of this year. And again, you know, I point to think about this for a second. These articles came out on June 30th. Uh, as at the time of this recording, uh, it is September 11th. 
So I'm pretty sure that um, many of you, if not all of you, have not heard about the independent state legislature theory before I just mentioned it to you 20 minutes ago. So, you know, it, it is worth noting that, you know, this is something that is uh, something of a uh, good kept secret that has been operating in the background. Uh, and, you know, as we've said on this show before, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, uh, a lot of times tactics uh, and remember what I said about strategy and tactics, um, you know, are are out there and are being performed to take your attention away from, you know, what is really going on. Uh, I recall in one of one of my earlier episodes, I talked about how uh, magic tricks work. And it works based on the simple principle that the magician wants you to pay attention to what one hand is doing so that you can't see or you don't pay attention to what the other hand is doing. And that's where the trick happens. So what we're seeing and what is playing out and remarkably is playing out uh, in, in a, a lot more of the light of day than normal is, you know, the distraction of you know, many of the events that you know we've been focused on over the last you know five six ten fifteen years has been just that the distraction while these plans have been working their way through you know this this concept and the second uh constitutional convention and the various tools and and uh tricks that are being used to disenfranchise the vote these aren't things that just sprung up over a weekend. These have been in motion for years, for many years. And we have just been distracted and not paying attention to it. So, all right, that being said, let, let's go into a little bit uh, from this uh, published uh, article from the Brennan Center for Justice. And again, this was authored by Ethan Herrenstein and Thomas Wolfe. Uh, who are attorneys that work with the Brendan Center. And, you know, they, so they published this article uh, back in June. And it says, you know, it, it, it starts off and talks about election integrity. Uh, there's a thread that links the partisan gerrymandering of congressional maps in North Carolina, attempts to dissolve the Wisconsin Election Commission, and efforts to overthrow the 2020 presidential election in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. In each case, the, partic the participants have invoked a dubious interpretation of the Constitution called the Independent State Legislature Theory. Uh, they talk about this uh, theory, you know, long relegated to the fringe of election law, and uh, they talk about uh, how that it will soon be in front of the Supreme Court which has agreed to hear the case that we just finished talking about. Uh, and they, they also cite that if the Supreme Court were to adopt the theory, it would radically change our elections. So let, let's dive in a little bit. Uh, let, let me kind of give you a backgrounder on what is the independent state legislature theory. And again, according to the Brennan Center, the independent state legislature theory is a reading of the Constitution pushed in recent years by a small group of advocates that would give state legislatures wide authority to gerrymander electoral maps 
and pass voter suppression laws. It has even been used as political cover to try to overturn elections. Now, they cite the Constitution delegates power to administer federal elections to the states, subject to congressional override. There is, however, a disagreement by how much power is delegated and to which state actors exactly. There are two relevant clauses. One, which I mentioned, is the election clause, which reads the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations. The second is uh, the Presidential Electors Clause, which reads, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. So when you put these two things together, the state legislature controls the times, place, and manner of holding elections, and they also control the manner uh, of the, the naming and number of electors that they submit to certify the presidential elections uh, that happen. So the dispute hinges on uh, the understanding of the word legislature. You know, and the article cites that the long-running understanding is that it re refers to each state's general lawmaking processes, including all the normal procedures and limitations. So, if a state constitution subjects legislation to being blocked by a governor's veto or citizen referendum, election laws can be blocked via the same means. And state courts must ensure that laws for federal elections, like all laws, comply with their state constitutions. So let's, let's break that down. And I, I talked about this um, last show, where there is a, a, an action afoot to uh, restrict the, the how and when that citizen referendums, that is ballot issues that are brought forward by a uh, by a, a petition of the citizens, which is independent of the normal, you know, state house, state senate, governor's uh, signature approach that is followed. When a ballot initiative is approved by the voters, it goes directly to the governor's desk, and the governor must sign it or veto it. Uh, and if it's vetoed, it then goes back for a recall election to redecide the issue. But under the terms of this independent state legis legislature theory, proponents reject this traditional reading, insisting that these clauses give state legislatures exclusive and near absolute power to regulate federal elections. The result, when it comes to federal elections, legislatures would be free to violate the state constitution and state courts couldn't stop them. Marinate on that for a second. So they could select any group of people they want to be electors as long as they agree to the party line and agree to uh, elect who the party wants them to elect and there's no challenge at the state level. 
it, it, it continues to say extreme versions of the theory would block legislatures from delegating their authority to officials like governors, secretaries of state, or election commissioners who currently play important roles in administering elections. So can, can you see this now? Can you see what, what's happening here? Basically, there that is one political party, uh, doesn't matter which political party it is, is saying we are dictating who's going to be president of the United States. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter who you, the people, voted for. It doesn't matter who got, you know, the most popular votes. Uh, we're saying that, you know, Joe Schmo is going to be president of the United States because we say so. You know, so um, this, where did this come from? How did, how did this gain legs? Well, you, you could go back to the 2000 election, uh, which was the uh, contentious election uh, uh, Bush versus Gore. And if you recall, it was tied and came down to uh, the, uh, the decision in Florida as to who would become president of the United States. And if you go look up your history, uh, you know, look it up in Wikipedia, uh, 2000 presidential election, Bush v. Gore. And you'll you'll read about, you know, things like hanging chads and 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 all of that. And what this led to was an embryonic version of this independent state legislature theory. And this is according to uh, Chief Justice Justice William Rehnquist. Uh, he wrote a concurring opinion in the case of Bush v. Gore that went to the Supreme Court. And he argued that the Constitution's assignment of elections authority to state legislatures diminishes state judges' power to alter, quote, the general coherence of the legislative scheme. This approach garnered little scrutiny outside of academia at the time. Now, here we are 15 years later, and the, the idea was dusted off and exhumed as part of an effort to dismantle Arizona's Independent Redistricting Commission. Side note, Arizona has an independent, nonpartisan redistricting commission who follows the, the rules laid out in the state constitution in determining how districts are drawn. Again, the Supreme Court rejected the theory and let the commission continue its work. But now we roll up to the 2020 election where you know, former President Trump and his allies used the same theory as part of their effort to overturn the results. For a third time, the Supreme Court declined to adopt the theory. But three sitting justices, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch, endorsed it. Uh, it was uh, shot down by a, uh, a majority vote, but those three were in the opposition minority. Um, most recently, gerrymanders in North Carolina, Kansas, and beyond have invoked this theory to try and block state courts from reviewing their maps. So far, the Supreme Court has not embraced it. Now, you know, again, string the, string the beads on the thread. You know, now we have a much more conservative court. We have a 6-3 court 
thanks to you know the the judges that were appointed during the Trump administration. So, you know, what are some of the arguments uh, pro and con on this theory? Well, proponents uh, emphasize a narrow reading of the word legislature in the elections and electors clauses. They also point to a couple of Supreme Court cases from the early 20th century ruling that state constitutions could not take away state legislatures' power to ratify federal constitutional amendments under Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution. Adherents argue that the same logic must apply to the elections and presidential electors clauses, even though the Supreme Court has made clear that the ratification of constitutional amendments under Article 5 is distinct from the ordinary lawmaking process used in election administration. So uh, in, in, in layman's terms, um, Article 5 governs how amendments to the Constitution can be made. The argument is uh, on one side that they're saying that, you know, that state constitutions could not take away uh, the state legislature's power to ratify federal constitutional amendments. So, you know, essentially um, that you, you can't put something in your state constitution that would preclude your state legislature from ratifying federal constitutional amendments. Um, now, critics point out that there are several flaws in this theory and its justifications. First, they point out the framers did not trust state legislatures to run fair elections. Wow. They empowered state legislatures to administer federal elections only with great hesitancy. What led to the appointment of this convention? John F. Mercer of Maryland rhetorically asked his fellow delegates to the 1787 Constitutional Convention the corruption and mutability of the legislative councils of the states. James Madison, similarly suspicious of the legislature's prepared for the convention by compiling a list of ways state legislators had failed to act in the national interest. So, you know, and, and this is what led uh, to the elections clause, which reserves to Congress the power to override the abuses of power uh, at the state level. Um, there's further historical evidence uh, against the independent state legislature theory and this uh, is, is detailed during the founding era, which uh, is when uh, documents such as the Federalist Papers were written. Most state constitutions regulated federal elections, and most state legislatures shared their elections power with other state actors, uh, i.e. the governor, secretary of state, etc. So, you know, you, you can see here the interplay uh, that had transpired, and you can also see that if something was put in place that would block all of that, the path between, uh, you know, posting a, a non-elected uh, slate of electors uh, becomes almost a completely straight line, rather than having to go through these process steps of approvals and checks and balances uh, in order for those electors to be seated. So, uh, 
the the article from this from the center next asks, what would happen if the Supreme Court accepted the independent state legislature theory? Uh, their position is that it would cause significant disruption by potentially nullifying state constitutional provisions regarding federal elections. State constitutional bans on gerrymandering in Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, and other states could die, as could independent redistricting commissions in Arizona, California, Michigan, and other states. And I don't have my electoral count map ahead of, in front of me at the moment, but I believe if all of those states uh, were affected in this way, uh, that would be enough to throw an election one way or the other. Um, other state constitutional provisions, like the right to a secret ballot in many states, could also be wiped out. What does that mean? It means that uh, someone could stand and look over your shoulder and see who you voted for and perhaps try and influence you. Uh, the nightmare, and, and this is what I, I read before, um, about the nightmare that a legislature being displeased with how an election official on the ground has interpreted the election laws could invoke the theory as a pretext to refuse to certify the results of a presidential election and instead select its own slate of electors. So, you know, uh, again, string all of these, these dots together. Uh, add into the mix what we've talked about over the past few weeks in terms of the second constitutional convention, in terms of the blockage of uh, the, the how and the, the when and the, and the where that citizen ballot initiatives can be initiated, can be uh, put together and submitted. Uh, add these to what we have seen with uh, the, the changes that are occurring at the state level in what used to be considered fairly uh, untouchable laws. And I'm, I'm not talking about Roe v. Wade here. I'm talking about, uh, you know, the, the law in Texas that limits the number of ballot boxes to one per county or the, the changes to the voting um, laws in Florida that restricted the hours and said that you couldn't give uh, anyone within 150 feet of a polling place uh, food or water, you know, and in all of these little things, put them all together in a row and you begin to see the, the depth and the deviousness of the Southern strategy at play. Um, you know, and, you know, this, as I said, has been a work in progress since Richard Nixon. So 50 years that this has been going on. You know, in, in the, the post-Nixon era, because uh, in part because Nixon got run out of town on a rail for doing something that was less than legal in order to try and assure his, you know, his victory uh, in, you know, as president. Um, and here we are. So, you know, it, it is clear, and I, I can't think of, of a more clear call to action for everyone, regardless of your party, but everyone to get out and vote. Now, as you vote, consider what I, ha what I have said here. 
and what I've said in the past few episodes. Um, look at how the the these conservative radical um, officials are going to change the game, and trust and believe. If you're a Republican, this may not impact you right now, but it will impact you at some point. Something that the Republican electorate wants to see put in place is going to get intercepted or blocked by one or more of these initiatives. You know, it it, it may be as simple as a, um, you know, as a tax benefit, or it may be as complicated as a a voting rights amendment. So this isn't something that should concern just Democrats. This should concern Democrats, Republicans, independents, everybody. Because no matter what your political party is, at the end of the day, we are all still subject to the laws of this country. And if those laws are, are adjusted or rigged in favor of one group over another, you know, or rigged in favor of, you know, one uh, uh, economic group over another, you know, uh, and look again, you know, if you want an, an idea and think about this for, for a minute, if you want to see how what seems like a relatively innocuous change in a law has had a profound uh, difference in the outcome of elections, look at the the downstream effects of the Citizens United decision, essentially where the Supreme Court uh, affirmed that money is speech. Look at how our elections have changed just since that single event, just since the ability for corporations to play a money role in our election politics. Look how that has changed how this country operates. Look at the things that have, have been uh, done away with. Look at the changes to our environmental laws. Look at the changes to um, you know, our, our political representation. Look at the changes to you know, who uh, has become you know, a senator or a congressman or a state senator or a state congressman when you know, money uh, can be poured into can into campaigns. You know, look up, go to, um, or, or search for campaign contributions. There are a couple of websites that will show the elected officials and how much money they have received uh, in campaign contributions over a given period of time. You know, and you'll be amazed at the amount of money that flows to political candidates. And, and, you know, it, it, it's, it flies in the face of what the founders intended when they set up our system of, you know, legislators, you know, of, you know, uh, congresspeople and senators, of state reps and state senators. The idea was that, you know, ordinary people would serve as part of the government to govern this country for a period of time and then go home not stay in for, you know, 40, 50 years uh, and, and rake in millions and millions of dollars. That was not their intention. 
but it has become what is the reality here on the ground. So, again, call to action. Study up. First of all, double-check to make sure your voter registration status is up-to-date and correct. Do that now. Do it today and check back on it, you know, weekly if you need to or monthly between now and the midterm elections. And they, and again, over the course of the two years between the midterms and the general election. Make sure that your vote, that your right to vote isn't being uh, scraped away in some purge of the voter rolls. Um, do that well before you have to go to vote. All right. And, and by the way, um, early primaries uh, for the midterms have already begun. We're in the political season. So uh, be smarter, be wiser, dig wider, dig deeper, stay safe, and you know, stay tuned. If you have questions or comments about this episode or any of my podcasts, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com and tell me what you think. I really, really want to know. I really want to engage with you out there and get your opinions. So with that being said, we'll close it up for this, this episode. Once again, um, you know, our, our show and you know, our family here at WJMS extend our deepest condolences to the people of the United Kingdom on the passing of the Queen, and we wish Godspeed to His Majesty King Charles III. Everybody stay safe. Everybody keep an ear out because I'll be sending another one of these podcasts your way in seven days.